unfortunately, as of now, I don't have anything new in my hands. So I'm going to kick it over to you. What have you picked up lately? Oh, man, yeah, I've kicked up. A... Oh, yeah, man, I've kicked. <laughs> Game talk tonight. Yeah, man, I've picked up. A... <laughs> God, was it a full moon tonight? Jeez. Listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where Single Banana and I, Grey Ghost 81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and played by a community of gamers on RF Generation and social media platforms like Twitter. Every episode features input from the community and maybe some guests. In episode 55, we continue our long-running tradition of playing spooky-themed games for the Halloween season. This year, we settled on an NES cult classic, Monster Party. Is this side-scrolling action game worth your time, or is it a party you're better skipping out on? Stay tuned for our discussion. You can listen to our show on Podbean and iTunes, where we always appreciate a good review. On Twitter, we're at RFG Playcast, and Rich is at the Single Banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thanks for listening, and now on with the Playcast.
Oh man, I'm so tired. I uh, had <laughs> four girls over at the house last night, including my daughter, for a sleepover. I don't know what we were thinking. Wow, yeah, that must have been fun. Was it like a movie night kind of thing, or what were y'all doing? No, my daughter did not have soccer this weekend, so we were like, well, she never gets to have anyone spend the night because she's so active, you know, and we're always going on the weekends, so I was like, yeah, you can have a few friends spend the night, so uh, my wife and I, we just went to bed like around nine o'clock, we're just like, to hell with it, let them kill each other, who cares, you know, whatever happens. You know, happens. Teenage girls, man. And and they're not even teenagers yet, like preteen girls. So, you know, they're they're getting into all that makeup and you know, you always gotta have crafts for them and stuff to do. They're like, What crafts do you have? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, you might can find some like empty toilet paper rolls or something like that to work with. I don't know, man. I I don't do crafts, you know. (laughs) Just let them play Fortnite. Well, there was some of that, yeah. There you go. But um, today's just been all about Halloween, getting all of our stuff set up outside, you know, putting the kind of finishing touches. We do kind of a big thing, and uh, in a few days you'll see uh, some of the uh, pictures from inside the house and outside the house that I'll put up on Twitter uh, and Instagram. But, uh, yeah, this afternoon we decided to finally carve the jack-o'-lanterns because... You know, you don't want to carve them too early because they start to rot. So you really have to do them like five or less days before Halloween or they just really start to get nasty and the bugs get all over them and they start to kind of wilt. So, uh, so yeah, we did that tonight. It's always a fun type of Halloween ritual that I uh, do with the kids. How about yourself? Do you and your wife do anything for Halloween? Well, we only have one ritual, and I can't remember if I've talked about it on the show. I might have, um, but we try to watch this movie called Trick or Treat, and not the one from the 80s, but the one from 2007. It's Trick, and then the letter R, Treat, Trick, R, Treat, I guess. But that's the one that has Anna Paquin in it, Brian Cox is in it. It's like an anthology movie with a really good wraparound story and all the stories kind of intermingle with each other. And it's just one of our favorite movies. And over the years watching it, it's become one of those movies that I've probably seen more times than any other movie, if I had to guess. That's our ritual and our tradition, so... Yeah, I mean, I would say if you're looking for a movie that is not only a horror movie, but it feels like a Halloween movie, that is the perfect one. It takes all the traditions from Halloween, and like you said, I think there's like four or five narratives going all at one time, and it kind of culminates in one story because they're all happening in the same town. Yeah. And it's really, really good. Yeah, I, I love that movie as well. It's one of the better horror movies that has come out in the last 10 or so years. Have you ever read the graphic novel? I have not. I I will have to see if my library has that. Otherwise, maybe pick up a copy on eBay. I haven't read it. Yeah, it's good. I have a copy of it in my uh, small collection of graphic novels. And uh, yeah, it's it's worth a look, you know, just to kind of see kind of how it fits in with the movie. And if you recall from the movie, there are a few comic book cell shots within and uh, I think that's kind of where that comes from, is uh, use in the graphic novel. Obviously, you and your wife probably don't trick-or-treat. I know you dress up, but do you guys hand out candy or do anything like that on Halloween? We do, and actually, where we live now, we get so many trick-or-treaters. It's really awesome. 
We used to live in New Jersey. We lived on a dead end and we really never got any trick-or-treaters. And then when we first moved here, we lived in an apartment complex and we got no trick-or-treaters. But now we live in a very like suburban-ish type of neighborhood and we just put all the lights on. We don't decorate, but man, it's it's so cool seeing all the kids dressed up and I get a real kick out of giving out candy. It's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah... I am going to dress up. I couldn't get a to dress up, but uh, I am going to be Andrew WK. I I was thinking about doing the Ryuko costume again from Kill la Kill, but I did it last year and that costume kind of cost me a fortune. I mean, I bought like real cosplay props for it, like the jacket, you know? Yeah. Um, But rather than that, I decided to go with something different and kind of repurpose the sneakers from the Ryuko cosplay I can use for Andrew WK because they're just white high tops. And oddly enough, I said, wow, the hardest thing about doing this is going to be finding a pair of white jeans in my size. Uh, But when I went to Savers, that was the first thing I found. So after that, I just had to get some fake blood and a white T-shirt and I'm ready to go. I was going to say, are you just going to let your wife punch you in the nose and, uh, you know, just let it go from there? <laughs> that would be really authentic, but uh, it would. No, I, we bought a tube of uh, fake blood, so. Yeah, I love handing out candy, too, but I really don't get to do that anymore with the kids. We live in a pretty nice-sized neighborhood, so we can walk around and just trick-or-treat within the neighborhood, which is nice, but, you know, it seems that year after year, less and less people are handing out candy, and it's a little depressing. We used to walk the neighborhood and I would be so exhausted at night because the houses are, you know, probably anywhere from like an acre to a half acre apart. And um, I run out of uh, whiskey, too. So my neighbor last year, (laughs) he had like a truck and we just kind of put the tailgate down and we all jumped on the back and just kind of rode from house to house. So I'm going to contact him in the next day or so, see if we can maybe get together and do that again. That was a, a lot of fun, you know. That's smart. Yeah, but typically, man, we get anywhere from 10 to 30 kids. And it's just really sad. I hated it. It just really kind of breaks my heart. But, you know, I talk to other people like you and like some of my coworkers, and they're like, oh, we get hundreds of kids. And that makes me feel really good inside because I'm just kind of like, well, it's good to know that kids are still out there trick-or-treating. And, you know, it's probably just where I live. If people have kids, they bring them. But we kind of live deep in a neighborhood and You know, you're just not going to get people driving in just to trick-or-treat our neighborhood. So it makes sense. But I like to see the kids, man. It's it's all about the kids. My kids are disappointingly doing Star Wars this year. I don't have a problem with Star Wars. My daughter's going as Princess Leia. My son, who already looks like Luke Skywalker but acts more like Anakin, is going as Luke Skywalker. And then the two-year-old is going as Yoda, which is going to be cute. I got him like a little walking stick and everything. Yeah. So um, I was wanting to do some kind of family thing, you know, and wanted to do something a little creepier. I was like, let's do Adam's family or, you know, something like that would be a lot of fun. But they kind of drug it into the Star Wars. So uh, I'm going to try to find me a Jar Jar Binks mask so I can just troll them all night. (laughs) That's awesome. Now, you know what's weird? Um, They don't have Mischief Night here. That is a tradition that I grew up with in New Jersey. Do they have Mischief Night or in some places it's called Devil's Night where you are? You know, I've heard of that before, but we don't have anything that's official to that. This must be like a, a more northern tradition. 
Yeah, it must be. And it's nothing I would endorse. I mean, honestly, it's kind of nice to not have it here. Basically, the teenagers, I guess you could say, uh, will go out the night before Halloween and just do pranks and vandalism. That's where you see a lot of like toilet papering. You might have seen that in some movies. Um, But that was a big thing back in New Jersey. And uh, I'm trying to think like, Really kind of more stuff like egging cars and stuff. But again, I wouldn't advocate that in the least bit. Yeah. People toilet paper people's houses here still. I mean, that happens around. We don't Mm. call it Devil's Night. We just call it Saturday. It just Ah. happens. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. I was never the type of kid that ever got really mixed up in that kind of stuff. Now, my wife, that's a different story, but I won't go into that. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, we didn't do it too much, but uh, I remember growing up seeing the aftermath. Mostly, I can just remember toilet paper everywhere, you know? So, uh, it's just weird that they don't do it here. It's funny. Yeah, some adults got to clean that up, and now that I'm the adult, I (laughs) I would have none of that. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Well... You said you're going as Andrew W.K. for Halloween, and what better way to segue into the concert cast than that? So, uh, Sean, you got anything on the agenda, or you been to any shows? Well, uh, Friday night I went to the Caro Caro Bonito show, and I had mentioned it on the show, and our listeners got a little sample because we put the song Trampoline in the show, so mm-hmm. that was awesome, and uh, that's one of my favorite songs by them. And I was a little... A little bit apprehensive because their latest album is more of an indie rock album. Literally, they went from doing synth pop with drum machines and stuff to having live drums and guitars. And it just sounds like a indie pop album with way more of a rock sound to it. And I didn't hate the album, but I much preferred the pop sound. But seeing them live... It was one of the best shows I've been to in a very long time. I brought my wife with me, and <laughs> she she had a good time. But uh, as far as uh, the typical complaints, like the crotchety old man complaints that, you know, you and I are going to write a book about someday. Right, right. It was really a pleasant experience. I got to tell you, it was mostly younger kids and there was actually some real young kids, like little kids, like parents bringing their their young children. So it was a very positive love fest. It was very nice and pleasant and everybody was just dancing and not slam dancing, not moshing, just dancing nicely, bouncing off each other pleasantly. It was just so nice. And the music... They played these versions of their songs that were very tranquil. I almost felt like hypnotized by the music. It was just really awesome. And then they came out and they uh, they encored with Trampoline. And everybody went nuts. I, I usually don't get too animated at shows, but I was dancing around, jumping. Like everybody's, of course, jumping around for Trampoline. And uh, man, what a show. It was just so, so good. If anybody follows my personal Instagram, I put a little video clip on it and you can see that. But man, what a show. It made me really appreciate the new album and I'm going to go take another listen to it. So yeah, that's it. I didn't pick up any new tickets or see anybody else, but that was one I was looking forward to. Uh, What about you? Anything, Anything new this month? 
No, I don't have any concert stuff going on right now. As I've mentioned on previous calls, there are a few shows on the horizon that I've thought about but haven't pulled the trigger on any tickets or anything yet. But uh, one thing uh, musically that I have sort of gotten into recently is uh, I picked up XM Radio with my new car that I purchased recently. It came with like a free trial. My wife has it in her car, and we learned from some friends that if you really want XM Radio and you don't want to pay a lot for it, all you got to do is call and basically say, I'm only going to pay $5 a month for it. And they'll do you a deal for five months at $25, which if you want XM Radio, if you, if you like that kind of thing, they have some really cool channels. They've got a new wave channel that I think you would really, really dig. Uh, and it's probably the one my wife and I listen to the most, you know, comedy channels, sports talk and stuff like that. But yeah, you can get it for five bucks a month, which is, you know, affordable, I think, for a lot of people. But um, anyway, as I'm listening to uh, this station called Ozzy's Boneyard that plays metal from like the 70s and 80s, and it's one of the stations I kind of frequent, I heard a band called Diamond Head that I had heard about before, but I'd never really listened to their music. Diamond Head is a British metal band. They had a few hits, but they really didn't make it to America, you know, like bands like Priest and uh, Iron Maiden, which were kind of part of that metal invasion by the British. So, you know, we really have never heard a lot of their stuff on normal radio, but I heard a song several days ago, and I was like, oh, I really like this, so I thought, you know, I would check it out, and uh, really digging it a lot. And another band called uh, Witch Angel, uh, I've been listening to some of their stuff, too, and uh, really been digging in. So, uh, yeah, no concert news on the horizon, but, you know, just figured I would mention a few bands that I've been listening to lately. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah, I think we should always, even if there's no shows or uh, tickets purchased, we should always recommend some music. Uh, It's one of my favorite parts of the show. So I'm glad you went in that direction. So I wanted to follow up on something I talked about last month, which was the anime Princess Nine. And it's funny because I briefly name dropped an anime from 1969 called attack number one and you ran with it and put the attack number one theme song in the show (laughs) which was awesome because you put this like psychic meta (laughs) commentary in the show because it (laughs) it just so turned out that i went back and was watching attack number one because as i had mentioned last month at the time we recorded to my knowledge only the first episode was out there in the internet Mm -hmm. because this anime was never uh released in the united states As it turns out, I went back and I said, well, I want to watch that first episode again. It was really enjoyable and funny. So I went to, let's say, a place where I get pirated anime from. And (laughs) lo and behold, there were like almost 70 episodes. And it turns out there's a a fan sub group called Old Castle. And they are doing a fan sub for attack number one and it's ongoing they've done about 71 episodes at the time of this recording and it's just like oh my god what a treat so i'm watching the show now i'm about five episodes in and it's really good i actually find that you know there's so much anime out there that anime can be really hit or miss in general but i find that the further back you go that hit or miss quality you get a lot more misses sometimes some stuff is just really dated, you know? Um, there's yeah. classics like the original Astro Boy and Gigantor, and there's really great stuff back there, but there's a lot of stuff that's just not very enjoyable in this day and age. But 
so far, attack number one is really good. It's really well written. The characters are really fleshed out and I'm enjoying it quite a bit. So I think that was <laughs> it was kind of a fun follow up to my anime recommendation from last month is uh, this one now. So just look for Old Castle fan subs on the Internet if you want to check this one out. It's very easy to find now, which is so awesome. Let's go ahead and head into our news segment. Um, I sent you a message the other day about Limited Run Games, and I know Limited Run is a company that you and I in the past have thrown our support to. It's actually a place that's local to where I live, and you know I've met the guys that run it before at a convention. Very nice guys, but they sent a message out the other day that I almost felt like was an April Fool's joke when I read it. And, uh, you know, it's been getting sort of mixed reviews. And even the guys that work there said people have threatened them with physical violence. Oh, boy. I mean, you know how some people are. But apparently Limited Run Games is now in partnership with Best Buy. Let me preface this with saying that it's not for all of their releases. It's for two releases that they've already released and then a third release that has not been named yet. And I believe all three of these, if I remember correctly, are Switch games. So basically they're saying like, okay, we're going to partner with Best Buy. We're going to have some of these games sold at Best Buy. Now, what I understand is this, is that they will still be selling these games through Limited Run. And if you've already pre-ordered, they've allowed people to cancel their orders if they wanted to, which I think, you know, is a fair thing to do. However, what they've said is that the cover art for the actual limited run series will be different 
from what they're selling at Best Buy. And if you would like to order one of the Best Buy covers just to swap it out or just have it to do whatever you want to, then they're allowing you to order that, uh, I guess, you know, for a few bucks. I don't know, man. I think at first when I heard this news, I was a little conflicted. I was shocked, you know, because you see Limited Run and Best Buy are a partnership and you're thinking, okay, this is a small time company. Best Buy is a corporate giant. Right. Anytime you mash these two things together, it always seems to create problems. And it always really makes people who are involved in a smaller company very leery and jump the gun on things. And I think that's where these notions of physical violence are coming from. So I'm curious to, to know what you think about this partnership. Well, I, I just want to say first, I didn't realize that there were threats of violence, but I'm not surprised. And I just have to say threats of violence are never, ever, ever okay, especially in this day and age and this climate that we're in, you know, just pump the brakes when some video game company does something for crying out loud. Um, Yeah, this is nothing to be violent about. I mean, (laughs) you know what I mean? I mean, it's nuts. And I think in this social media world, we think we can just get away with doing these things. There's no repercussions for that. Yeah, it's a a real shame. Yes. But putting all that aside, yeah, it was a weird thing to see. And I think, you know, I've probably made this analogy before. It's like when your favorite little indie band gets huge and signs to a major label, you'd say that they sold out. And this kind of gives me that feeling. But in a way, I mean, I feel like we've talked about them in a controversial light more than a few times on Mm -hmm. this show. And they're never going to please everybody. And it seems like every time they do something noteworthy, it really aggravates a lot of people. The other thing is, like, nobody shops at Best Buy. Like, <laughs> they're not. Uh, I, I mean, if it was Walmart, true. If, if they did, like, Walmart or, or Target or Amazon or something, that would be, like, oh, wow, they're they're done. It's unlimited run games now. Forget about it. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah, it's weird. But, I mean, they are kind of placating the situation by saying it'll be a variant, you know, the Best Buy variant, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think that kind of diffuses things a little bit. Before they launched Switch games, I remember them saying a lot that they have like minimum runs that they can do for Switch games. And it seems like they're doing most, if not all, of their Switch games via pre-order. And they probably have some kind of minimum production that they have to meet. So this is a good way to move that product. You know what I mean? I totally agree with that. I think... That's uh, one of the things that our buddy Duke Togo was saying. It'd be good for them to get rid of some back stock, you know, to be able to sell it at places like that. I understand it from one side, especially the collectors. You know, this is a limited run of a game. I mean, it's in the title of your company. But they've always fluctuated on the amount of titles that they've ran in the past, right? Sometimes they might run 3,000 of one thing. Sometimes they might run 5,000. So... I don't really see the difference in that aspect, and I do appreciate what they're doing as far as making these variant covers for the people who are the collectors. I mean, they obviously knew that this was going to blow up and this was going to be something that people would be upset about, and we would expect that as well. But at the same time, I feel like that they're doing what they can to still satisfy the collectors, and I think a lot of people tend to jump the gun before reading 
the entire press release of what they're doing. You know, they just see partnership, limited run games, and Best Buy, and then they're so quick to jump on social media and attack it or threaten violence or anything like that. You know, I think that they think that the games that they currently have are going to go down in value for some reason. And maybe they'll run some of the past titles that they've released. But like I said, as long as they stick to their plan and do the variant covers and things like that, I don't see a problem in it. But at the same time, a part of me saying, like, if you're just buying games to sell later or say, look at all this value that I have on my shelf, this is a rare thing, then you're probably buying games for the wrong reason anyway. Right. That's speculation. Yeah. I like to play games and I don't mind collectors, but come on. Right. I would say as well, I just thought of this, like I want limited run to do well and make a lot of money and reinvest Mm -hmm. into their own company. So if they go and sell a larger run of ukulele on the switch at Best Buy, and that allows them to license more niche titles on the PS4 and Vita, like There have been rumors, I think Doug mentioned, that they wouldn't be against doing a Yakuza game, and Yakuza 5 was never released physically. If selling ukulele and Best Buy enables them to license Yakuza 5 to make a physical version of that, that would be awesome. I, Of course, I would be all for that, and I'd be the first in line to get it. So hopefully they just leverage it into doing what we love them for, which is bringing these niche, weird Vita and PS4 games out uh, in physical versions. Yeah, and I think I should have mentioned early, like you said, Ukulele's one. The other game that they've announced is Golf Story for the Switch. That was the second one. And then the third one is uh, a game that's yet to be named. So it's probably a fairly big indie title, I would think. So, yeah, if you own a business, it's about making money. And like you said, if you're reinvesting that money, even better for people that like the limited run style games. You know, because these are only three games out of how many they've released. And these guys work hard, man. The thing is, is look how many games they put out every week. It seems like every week they're putting something new out. So kudos to them for what they're doing. I hope that they do it a long time. Awesome. Now, speaking of uh, nerdy collecting stuff, you (laughs) guested on a uh, podcast that's kind of all about that. I sure did. Uh, I want to thank the guys from Dollar Dorks, Derek and Chris, for having me on. Some of you may remember Chris. He was on the NARC podcast. I haven't put out an episode in a while. I believe they've disbanded. But uh, Chris Roberts is a really, really nice guy. He and I have always kept in touch on Twitter, especially. And uh, he was kind enough to uh, send me a private message and ask me on. And I was on episode 19. And just a little description of Dollar Dorks. This is one of the Cartridge Club's podcasts. And Derek's been hosting it for a while. Basically, they do a lot of pickups. They don't only pick up video games. They'll pick up like laser disc players or, you know, audio equipment. But a lot of video game stuff too. But anything they can find out in the wild and, you know, try to flip it on eBay and then make money to fund their video game collections. Which is really cool. It's a neat idea. The show is pretty much about what they do and any new finds that they had, what those ended up selling for, and then also tips to help people who are collectors learn about new products outside of video games so that you yourself can actually fund your video game collection without having to spend your own money. And so, uh, yeah, it was really, really neat. 
I didn't have a lot to contribute to the conversation in that manner because I'm not one of these people that has a lot of time to go out and search for these things with three kids and flip a lot of stuff. But I do flip some things a lot of times to fund my video game collection. And uh, yeah, it was really fun being on that show. They were really good hosts, and I think the episode came out very well. Cool. Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Well, speaking of pickups, uh, let's talk about some of our pickups this month, Sean. You got any? Unfortunately, no. I have a lot of stuff on the way, so next month's going to be pretty good for me, but I don't like talking about stuff before I have it, and uh, one of the things I have is coming from Limited Run Games that I pre-ordered a long time ago. I think it's going to ship soon, and I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, cool. But, uh, unfortunately, as of now, I don't have anything new in my hands, so I'm going to kick it over to you. What have you picked up lately? Yeah, man, I've picked up a few things. I'll start out with a few things I actually picked up from you. You sent me a copy of Harvest Moon for the PlayStation. You had a copy you were looking to unload and you contacted me about. And then I'd been posting on social media that I was trying to put together uh, five screw NES games basically just the black box games. I'm not looking for, um, you know, any of the other ones. There are, there are several. But you had told me that you had a copy of Kung Fu. And so you sent that to me, which I thought was really nice. And I appreciate it a lot, man. Got like three more and uh, I'll be done with that little subset. Something else that uh, I received in the mail from our buddy Retro Nonsense, Duke, who I mentioned on the show last time, who I forgot to thank, but I'm not forgetting this time. He um, went in a store and he always sends me like a photo of everything that's on the shelf, especially 2600 games. And so he found a, a copy of the text label Sears Telegames Soccer. And he picked that up for me. And then recently, I also picked up a copy of Adventure and Warlords, which are also those uh, telegames text labels. And so, yeah, just working on my 2600 variants, and uh, it's a lot of fun doing that. I also picked up a few PS4 games. I picked up a game called 88 Heroes, which... um, I think I had seen like a video about or someone did an article about on our site because I was reading the back of it and it sounded really familiar. I picked it up fairly cheap and then Krabby was on the show last time and he mentioned a twin stick shooter called Next Machina. And I had said that I was going to go to my local video game store because they carried limited run games and this game was a little pricey on eBay right now. And sure enough, they had a copy of it for PS4 and I got it for what I thought was a very fair price. It was probably about $5 more than I would have paid if I had gotten it for limited run games, which I thought was a great deal. So yeah, I picked up that. Apparently it's a twin stick shooter and uh, should be a lot of fun. I can't wait to dig into it. I also finally picked up a copy of Crossfire on the Genesis. This is one of a few Genesis games I was still looking for for my collection. And it is um, just the box and the cart. Did not have a manual in it. Um, but it's one of those games you don't come across a lot. So I just went ahead and picked that up. And then I picked up a copy of Spawn for the uh, Super Nintendo, uh, which is like kind of a little platformer sort of beat-em-up kind of game. It looks kind of fun. So uh, just been on my list for a while. I typically come across several copies of this game, but usually the problem is, is the labels are always messed up on this game for some reason. Another game I picked up, which is one that you mentioned on the show last time, that you would consider as one of sort of the outliers to put on that um, PlayStation Classic that we were talking about, and that is Crossroad Crisis. Oh, very cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
when you mentioned it on the show, I kind of put it in my head, wait a minute, this is a game that I've picked up and put down several times on the shelf. You know, like I'll see it and I was like, oh, it sounds interesting. I'll pick it up, look at the back. I'm like, eh, you know, it's like five bucks. I don't know. And put it back. But once you recommended it, I was sold. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a pretty cool game. It reminded me a little bit of, um, uh, do you remember the game Pipe Dream? Yeah. Yeah, so when you were kind yeah, of describing similar. it, that reminded me of that. And there was another game, I think, on the television called Locomotion that was very similar to that, too. So I picked that up. I picked up a platformer on Genesis complete in box called Pugsy. You play as a guy looks like a sweet potato or something that platforms around. It's really, really kind of goofy platformer, but it was very cheap. And so I grabbed that along with a copy of Time Killers for Genesis, which was one of my bigger pickups this month. Uh, if you do get a chance to listen to the Dollar Dorks episode 19, I talk about this game and picking it up. It was complete in box. One that I saw it, I'm like, I don't really ever see that game. Pulled it up on my phone. Saw that it was going for a pretty hefty price. Could not see how much it was inside the case. And they told me it was 35 bucks, And I was like, yep, I'll go ahead and take that because this is a game <laughs> complete that goes for over 100 bucks." And right. so, yeah, that was just an exceptional find. And, uh, you know, the store is always good to me. They always sell games cartridge price. And uh, this cartridge had some rental stickers on it. And so they were like, well, it's damaged. So they dropped the price even more, and that's how they got to their $35 price tag, which, you know, good for me. And then the last thing that I want to talk about pick up, which I thought was very interesting, and I didn't know about this. I picked up a game called Torneco, The Last Hope for PlayStation 1. I'd never heard of this game, and I pulled it off the shelf, and it looked like an RPG. And it had, like, the little blue slime on it from the Dragon Warrior series. And I looked it up on my phone, and it, this is sort of an offshoot of a Dragon Warrior game. And it basically features one of the shopkeepers that was in one of the earlier Dragon Warrior games, and you play as him. And I thought that was just such a cool concept. And uh, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and grab this game and uh, check it out. Again, it's at my little honey hole of a store that always has, you know, great prices. So I picked it up very cheap. And... Uh, you know, posted it to some of our friends. They're like, oh man, I've been looking for that game for a long time. And I'm like, yep, never knew about it. Just happened to be there and picked it up. But, uh, you know, what a cool concept. So, uh, yeah, I've had a good few last weeks of pickups. That is awesome. Yeah, there's a, the Torneco games go back as far as I know to the Super Famicom. And, uh, they're an interesting little side story to the Dragon Quest series. I've never played them, but like you said, the concept is really cool, playing as the shopkeeper from the main series. That's pretty neat. Yeah, very neat. All right, man, let's get into what are you playing? Cool. Well, I am playing something that I've been wanting to play forever, and I've talked in the past about my strong love for Joan of Arc, and uh, there's a game on PSP called Jean d'Arc, and sometimes when I play handhelds, I get more in the mood to play the handheld itself than I do like a particular game. Like sometimes I'll say, I want to play my Vita. What can I play on the Vita? And in this case, I said I haven't played a PSP game in a very long time and decided it was finally time to play Jean d'Arc because of my recent 
you know, love affair with Joan of Arc. <laughs> yeah. I should mention real quick, there's an amazing podcast called A History on Fire. And if you are a fan of hardcore history, which is probably the more well-known, probably the most well-known history podcast out there, if you like hardcore history with Dan Carlin, check out History on Fire. The quality there is probably just as good. And the host, Daniele Bolelli, I believe is his name, is friends with Dan Carlin and they kind of discuss things with each other. But anyway, he's currently running a series on Joan of Arc. So she's back in my life big time again. <laughs> so, so Jean d'Arc on the PSP came out in 2007. It was developed by Level 5. So that's the company that made Nino Cooney. Yeah. Uh, so you have this like kind of cool cell shaded anime kind of style to it. And it's a strategy RPG. It's not very different from Vandal Hearts, and it has elements of Fire Emblem. It has the kind of rocks, paper, scissor thing from Fire Emblem. And uh, it's really addictive. And if you ever thought, wow, I wish I could see the story of Joan of Arc as a magical girl anime strategy RPG, <laughs> then this is the game for you. And of course, how could that be any more in my wheelhouse? So right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. Unlike Vandal Hearts, it has free battles. So you can go and grind to your heart's content. And I'm a big grinder. I like going in prepared. I like having every member of my party at a certain level before I do the next story mission. My tweaking and min-maxing tendencies are really getting the attention with this game. So uh, I'm enjoying it a lot. And it's a, it's a very long game. And I'm, I'm not very far into it, but I've put a lot of time into it. So... I'm hoping to stick with it, but also just to like take my time with it. But recommend it to anybody looking for a good strategy RPG portably. It's really good. Yeah, I've heard good things about that game and actually have it in my collection as well. Haven't played it yet, of course, but uh, yeah, glad you've worked your way through it. And good to hear that you're giving it a positive recommendation. Absolutely. So what about you, Rich? What have you been playing? Whew, man, nothing really. I, I told you, I'm like... I'm not going to have anything on what are you playing this month, but I'd forgotten that after we finished our Batman Telltale show that I had gone out before the show and already bought The Enemy Within, and I played it so quickly, like over two nights, that I'd forgotten that I had played it in between the last recording and this one. So I did play The Enemy Within and uh, finish that game, and I know you did as well, right? That's right. As soon as you started texting me about this one is so much better than the first one, I can't put it down, you know? And I was just <laughs> yeah. like, oh man, like I got to grab this while it's fresh in my mind and we can talk about it. So I went and bought a copy and played through it as well. So, And our buddy Krabby did too. Yeah, that's right. All three of us enjoyed it pretty much, I think, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I think we some of us probably had a few problems with it, or a few issues with it, and you know, I can't put words into anyone else's mouth, but I, I do think that this one was done much better. I felt like it ran a lot smoother than the other one. I didn't have any engine issues with this one. What I really like about this game is I had mentioned in the last game that I did not like the character of the Joker, the way they were portraying him. Right. This game opens it up to being a story about the Joker and also Bruce Wayne and Batman. 
and you understand why they did that in the beginning. And I ended up loving his character. Um, I I just thought they did such a good job with setting it up in the first episode and just knocking it out in the second one. Um, It's an incredible storyline. And I'll tell you, the second game makes you make some tough, tough decisions as far as what your angle is going to be. It's got some of the classic Batman characters in it. I'm not going to like ruin any of the storyline or anything like that, but uh, the Riddler's fantastic. Bane's in it, Mr. Freeze, and Harley Quinn, you know, as well as the Joker. So, uh, yeah, it's a great rogues gallery for this game, and uh, I definitely highly recommend it, especially if you finish the first game. Yeah, same here. I think you kind of have to play this one if you played the first one. Mm-hmm. It- the groundwork was laid in the first game. And like you said, it has um, elements of the Suicide Squad in it. It has a lot more Bruce Wayne than Batman. And also, I really enjoyed, I I won't say too much about it to not spoil it, but they take (laughs) certain relationships from the lore of Batman that have seemingly been set in stone over the years. And they pull these reversals on, yes, on these characters that just work so well. And it's just like, Oh wow, that's such a cool way to see that. You know, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I thought that was so well done. That was so great. I'm going to be honest. It's really sad that telltale games has gone under because it's obvious that they set this game up for a third one. Yeah. Um, So hopefully if Telltale, you know, ends up having to fold, hopefully someone may take the reins and do the third game in that series. I would love to see that because I think they left you on sort of a precipice with this episode. And uh, it would be a real shame if uh, that's not followed through. Yeah, for sure. And this gives me a chance to uh, plug my latest article on the site. After we played the first Batman when we played that game with Krabby and we did that marathon of a podcast, it really put me on this Batman rabbit hole that I'm still in. And I noted in my article, when you go to the Austin public library system and you search Batman in graphic novels, you get over 400 results. Wow. And uh, I've just been reserving them like a dozen at a time and going and picking them up and just reading through them. And it's, I'm really catching up with my Batman lore. I didn't talk about it too much last month, but I did mention in my article that as much of a fan as I am of Batman, and I collected comics when I was a young, like a younger person, I actually had a very large comic collection until I moved out of New Jersey. I gave it away to a friend of mine. I was really a poser with comics. Like I collected them more than I read them. And, uh, Mm -hmm. I'm really like catching up on all the lore and there were things going on in the Batman universe that I had no idea about, like really cool stuff. And uh, (laughs) I really uh, am enjoying reading through all these graphic novels and uh, I'm going to recommend a few and then we'll talk about one that both of us read. But um, I got to talk about the Joker, the death of the family, not to be confused with a death in the family where they killed Jason Todd as Robin, but this is more recent. It's a story of the Joker who gets jealous of the, what's called the Batman family, which is Nightwing and Batgirl and Rob, all the different Robins. And he 
rounds them up and does grotesque things. It's very like horrifying and dark. It's uh, it's really good. So Death of the Family. And then the other one, I'm a huge fan of the Frank Miller Dark Knight Returns. In my opinion, Dark Knight Returns is far and away the best graphic novel of all time. And that includes Watchmen. I've read Watchmen. I've read Mouse. I've read, you know, all of those top tier graphic novels. I still think the original Dark Knight is the best one. I knew there was a Dark Knight too. I actually bought it when it first came out. And I liked it, but not as much as the first one. I didn't know until I started reading these books just now that there's a third one called The Dark Knight Master Race. It's pretty good. I read that and uh, it wasn't all drawn by Frank Miller, but some of the episodes were. And the ones that are written and drawn by Frank Miller are, of course, the best ones. But uh, that was a really good story. Yeah, I have been going to my used media store and I've picked that up several times and almost purchased it because you had recommended it last show. There's something about it. I'd remember seeing it and I've picked it up even before our last show. I cannot get into that Frank Miller artwork for Batman. I love Frank Miller. I love Sin City. I I love that comic book and I love the way he does the artwork. I love his art style. But for some reason, like infusing that art style with Batman, it just grates me for some reason. I, I, I don't know. I can't get used to it, if that makes sense. But I need to get it. I need to read it and just and just go with the story, and I think I would probably enjoy it if I did that. Yeah, his artwork is very out of the ordinary. It's so distinct, and it's almost like... It's kind of grotesque, you was, know. It, that's the exact word I was going to use. Um, I don't know why, but I just love it. And, man, if you don't like it in the first book, if Dark Knight uh, Part 2, I think it's called Dark Knight Strikes Again, it's even more kind of out there with the artwork. But uh, the third one is kind of back to normal. And actually, um, Andy Andy Kubert uh, drew some of the issues. So it, it's it's even more traditional in that way. But, yeah, that first one, man, I just... Mm, yeah, you got to read it okay. at least once. All right. like, I'll pick it up, yeah. man. I'll pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> but we agreed at the end of the previous episode, because when we had Krabby on, he said that his favorite Batman villain is Hush. And we talked about reading Hush together. And I actually read Hush and Heart of Hush, but you read Hush as well. So right. let's talk about that. What did you think of that? Well, I want to start off by saying that I had mentioned in the show... He said, you just need to read the first book. You know, you don't need to read the second one. Well, for whatever reason, when I bought this several years ago, mine came in two volumes. But there is a volume that is condensed with both. So most of what I see out now is, you know, that. Um, I really liked it. I thought it was a great take. It was cool kind of seeing more Bruce Wayne as a kid and him having a childhood friend that is not in the earlier comics. And um, they kind of did that in the Batman the Telltale game. Krabby mentioned that they did Penguin as one of Bruce's childhood friends. So it was kind of good to see where they kind of took that idea from. You know, someone who knew so much about Bruce Wayne, uh, he and this child had um, 
played like strategy games. It seemed like uh, I don't I don't know what it was, some kind of war game like Stratego or something like that against each other right. uh, when they were kids. And so this guy kind of knew Bruce Wayne's every move, how predictable he was about certain things, and. Uh, yeah, it's really good. I would like to see more of this character. There's a shame that there's not more of him out there. But uh, yeah, it, it was a good read, and uh, it was a very um, good setup, a real tangled web of a story that I thought was uh, done really well. How about you? Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought it was a good like new villain with a really good fleshed out kind of backstory. I like that there was some Joker action in there, some Clayface action and other villains with the story. I would also say um Heart of Hush is really good. I would recommend you check that out too and that's, Okay. I liked it maybe because it's more of a Catwoman centered story, but um that one was also very good. It's a little bit of a quicker read. It's pretty short, but um, <laughs> you can find it. It's worth picking up and giving it a read through. Very cool. Yeah, I'll do that. Since it's October and in the tradition of Halloween, we ask, what was the first scary movie you ever saw and describe the experience? And we had a few replies to this, Sean. So I'm going to go ahead and go through those before we tell everyone what our first scary movie was. So the first one comes from our buddy Metal Fro, or as he likes to call himself, Stanley Winston Hackysack Third Esquire. <laughs> he says, not necessarily a scary movie in the traditional sense, but the moment in Crawl where the beast leaps up after appearing to be dead scared me silly as a kid. That was my first legitimate jump scare. And I got a shout out to him for just even mentioning Crawl. 
I love that movie. I know I got buried on Mars to watch the movie, and he absolutely hated it. But, you know, I've got a huge crawl <laughs> poster in my video game room. It's one of my favorites of all time. I have such great memories of it as a kid. Michael Rancourt, he says, My first horror was due to the video store clerk recommending the original Troll as a family movie. My first true horror was Nightmare on Elm Street 3 which, in my opinion, is the best in the franchise and a favorite of mine. Oh, yeah. Dream Warriors. Great film. Have you seen that one? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that is the best one. That and the first one, I would say. Definitely the best, too. Buried on Mars, our buddy Kevin says, The original Friday the 13th at a neighbor's house on one of those vinyl movie players. The image of Jason jumping out of the water had traumatized me for months. I was 38. (laughs) (laughs) great scene i love that little jump scare at the end and then collector cast at collector cast this is our buddy duke togo he says no clue of the name but my dad took me to a horror film when i was very young so early 80s a girl was left in a car as it sank and she drowned of course she came back for revenge scared the crap out of me and my mom was not happy I know that feeling. I've been trying to find out what film that was. I've been searching and I cannot find anything. Please help us out and uh, contact us on social media. And then finally, our buddy Duke0619, also known as Retro Nonsense, he says, I'll never forget Poltergeist. I was at a relative's house and it was on cable. I never had cable. The scene with the boy counting between lightning and thunder and the tree-eating scene, along with the face-ripping scene, gave me nightmares for weeks. And that clown doll. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Poltergeist is one of those movies I saw later in life, and I didn't think it was scary at all. But I can, you know, imagine now seeing it as a kid and be terrified of it. So, yeah, I totally get that. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the responses, guys. Duke, I didn't have cable either. I always had to rely on a neighbor uh, for cable if I wanted to watch anything. But uh, Sean, hey man, what was your first scary movie? (laughs) So first, let me give you uh, my wife's response because I asked her this. And interestingly nice. Very nice. (laughs) She told me that she saw The Exorcist when she was about 10 years old, and that was her first horror movie experience. Oh, wow. And it's still one of her favorite movies, but I was kind of struck by that, imagining, you know, 10 years old is a young age to see that movie, especially back in the day. That that movie is very shocking and kind of over the top with its language and imagery, you know, the things that are going on in that film. So I thought that was a very interesting response. And, uh... (laughs) my wife said that explains a lot doesn't it (laughs) she said it not me (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny man like that you say that because usually when someone sees something that scares the hell out of them as a kid they don't consider it one of their favorite movies or enjoy seeing it or won't watch it. My wife, for instance, will not watch A Nightmare on Elm Street, refuses to watch any Freddy Krueger movies. She will watch any scary movie with me. All the Friday the 13th stuff, Halloween, no problem. She will not watch A Nightmare on Elm Street because it scarred her as a kid. She had some uh, cousins who actually played the film in front of her, and she watched it and... uh, just nightmares for weeks and weeks. So she's still, to this day, you know, she's 39. She will not watch that film 
a group of friends and I, the ones that are coming over for our horror movie marathon that we do during Halloween in the month of October, which I should have mentioned is one of our rituals. A group of us sort of had a talk with her during our last film showing and decided that we're going to have to do some sort of intervention and, and make <laughs> her watch one of the later films, possibly Dream Warriors, where Freddy becomes sort of the more... Um, Comedian, you know, and maybe that will take a little bit of the edge off of watching the original film and, you know, kind of weaning her into watching that again. Very cool. So as for me, this is kind of funny because I'm the one who came up with this question. And at the time, I thought it was a great question. I, I still do. However, believe it or not, I cannot remember the exact first horror movie I ever saw you know, like a lot of people our age, we had to go to video rental stores and rent videotapes. And I remember watching tons of horror movies. And I'm going to say the chances are that the first one I ever saw had to be one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets or one of the Friday the 13th because we watched them all. And then after that and in between those, we rented every other scary movie that our video store had. My dad and I were really into them, uh, <laughs> but it's cool. just funny. I can't remember the first one and I wasn't scarred for life by any particular movie. It's funny. I saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I was a teenager, like I, I didn't see that movie until I was in high school. And I remember that movie scared the crap out of me. And I still find oh, yeah. it very disturbing. It's funny that when I was a younger kid, I could watch Freddy and Jason and all these other things. And I just thought it was cool and fun. And uh, I, I don't know, maybe when I became old enough to kind of view things differently as far as life goes <laughs> to see Texas Chainsaw, I found that more disturbing uh, as a teenager. Well, you know, the irony in that is there is absolutely no gore at all in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think That's a right. lot of people that uh, have seen the movie will tell you that there is, but you kind of misremember. It's the way it's shot and the way everything's positioned. There's no blood, no real gore in it. I mean, there's blood. People get cuts and things like that, but you don't really see any of the gore, any of the real violence on screen. It's what you don't see that's really horrifying. What's so scary about that film, I think, and I saw it at a very young age, Sean. It was probably like the third horror film that I had seen over at my grandparents' neighbor's house. They had gotten that in The Hitcher. But what makes it so scary is it's so gritty and uh, lifelike, the way it's filmed. It's so yellowy and um, feels more real to life. Right. Whereas like Freddy and Jason are very supernatural beings that you can hit and they just don't die. They keep coming back. You don't really get that feeling with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The fact that at the beginning of it, they say this is based on a true story and they have that text intro, which it sort of is. Nothing in Texas, but it's based off of uh, Ed Gein, right. uh, who is a uh, serial killer up north. So, you know, story based on him, but set in Texas instead. But um yeah, that's a fantastic film, and it's it's awesome that Nightmare on Elm Street was one of your first films. That was 1984 was when that came out. Let's see, Halloween 78, and then the first Friday the 13th in 1980. The first film that I saw as a kid, and I can't remember which one it was because I was at a summer day camp. I was 10 or 11 years old. 
my parents were very conservative about what I could watch. I never got to watch horror films growing up. Now, there might have been something on TV, you know, I might have seen like an old Wolfman or Dracula film, but they sent me to this summer camp and it must have been super cheap because they they would take us to the movies every week. They would take us swimming, but then they would also bring in movies and wheel them in on a cart the old school TVs that you would, you know, wheel in from the school because this was at an elementary school. Well, these counselors that ran it were basically high school kids, teenagers. Right. And they played Friday the 13th Part 3 <laughs> and Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one, the same day. And just showed it to every kid there. And there were kids there that were younger than us. They would not let us leave. They made us all stay in the gym where they showed it. <laughs> I don't know if this is my first experience with horror films, but it was like my first very traumatic experience to horror films. And man, I remember sleeping on my parents' floor for like the next two months. I was terrified. Oh my goodness. I could not sleep. Yeah. (sighs) Wow. That's awesome. We went to the theater once a week and they took us to see Critters. (laughs) (laughs) And Red Heat. Like we would go see rated R movies. It was insane. That's so awesome. (laughs) Unbelievable, man. I can't believe people's parents didn't complain and people didn't get fired. But anyway. I got a funny aside. You just made me remember something because we had something very similar to that. We called it summer recreation because it wasn't like summer camp where you went and stayed. It was no overnight stuff. It was like a day camp. Right, right. So you just get dropped off in the morning and you'd go home sometime after lunch, basically. I remember they did this thing. They called it a talent show. And it was just dumb. Like they'd play music and you'd lip sync to it and dance to it. I remember this group of older boys, <laughs> they took wiffle ball bats and they played George Michael, I Want Your Sex, and just jumped around, <laughs> like swinging the wiffle ball bats and doing air guitar <laughs> until they got thrown <laughs> off the stage. It was just <laughs> ridiculous. And it's just like, what the hell was going on in the- <laughs> In the late 80s and early 90s, you know? (laughs) Apparently, awesomeness was going on. (laughs) Those days were fun, though. I do remember being that age and the teenagers, you just thought they were the the coolest human beings on planet Earth, you know? You just wanted to be like them. They drove cars and they were just so cool. And yeah, I remember those days. That was fun.
right, so the participants for Monster Party this month. We had Crabmaster2000, Dougley007, Engineer Mike, Metal Fro, Duke Togo played through the game, and then, of course, the two of us. So, I want to start off talking a little bit about the development of the game. It was developed by Human Entertainment and published by Bandai. The game was released in North America in June of 1989, but it was actually never released in Japan. However, there was a version developed called Parody World Monster Party. I'm going to kind of save it because I'm going to talk about that game at the end of the show because I actually bought a copy of the game to play that Japanese version that was never released. So I'm going to save that to talk about it. But I want to go ahead and go into our histories with this game. I know that you had mentioned to me, Sean, that you had a a pretty significant history with this game. And so uh, I want to give you a chance to talk about that. Yeah, that's true. And I I also want to say I was kind of surprised to find out this game was never released in Japan. That's Uh, Yeah, I was shocked. uh, Now you as an NES collector, you know that's kind of an uncommon thing. Most games for the NES funneled through the Famicom before they came Mm -hmm. over here. Um, So that's a bit of an oddity. So I was uh, surprised to find that out. But yeah, I I mentioned uh, when we announced this game that I was really psyched to play it because this was one of the games my friend Jesse and I, when we were children, that he had it and we pass it back and forth to each other. You know, we're always trading games, borrowing games with each other and uh, played this game quite a lot. And I distinctly remember a lot of the first level and none of the rest of the game. So I mentioned (laughs) that we probably weren't very good at it and never got very far. And that was the reason I was kind of excited to play it. What about you? Did you have this one growing up? Uh, You know, I don't remember if I owned it or not, but I played a lot of it growing up. I don't remember ever buying it. As I mentioned before, I had a friend whose dad owned a video rental store. And so I would just go over to his house or go to the video rental store and borrow games for, you know, as long as I needed to borrow them usually. And so this is one that I played a lot as a kid. I actually did beat it when I was um, a kid, I I guess probably a preteen if this was around 1989. This is one that uh, I I sunk a lot of time into. and, And because of that... You know, it's a game that's very dear to my heart, and uh, I wanted to kind of play it again recently to see, you know, if it is actually a really good game or if these are just rose-colored glasses that I have for the nostalgia of playing it so much when I was a kid. You all know that I'm very into horror movies, and so, you know, it probably had a lot to do with this game and my enjoyment of it. Just looking at the game, you've got the cart and the box art that has like Dracula. It's got the creature from the Black Lagoon on it. So expectations are fairly high when you pop this cartridge into your game system. Absolutely. The cover art is great. And that purple spine on the shelf looks really nice. Yeah, it's a really neat game to have on the shelf. But, uh, you know, at the same time... It's a little deceptive in that a lot of the things that you think are going to be in the game are not in the thing. It's a wacky game, and it has a lot of really, really wacky themes, including a very wacky story, which I will get into right now. So your two main characters in the game, and really the only two characters in the game, are Mark and Bert. Mark's just a young boy, and he's walking home one night from baseball, and he sees a star fall from the sky and learns that it's not a star, but it's actually a monster. 
I would describe it as like sort of a Birdman slash kind of gargoyle looking character. His name's Bert, and he wants you to come with him to save his home. It's been corrupted by this evil and turned into something called the Dark World. Bert comes along with you, and he actually fuses himself with you to aid in the quest, and that's something that we'll get into as we talk about the gameplay. Anyway, fairly simple story. You know, not much of a storyline as, you know, with a lot of early games, especially on the NES. But the meat of this game is really in the gameplay. It's a platformer. There's seven horizontal stages and one vertical stage, which is a a very kind of neat feature and a way to mix it up in the game. And it also culminates with what some people call a ninth stage, but it's not really a ninth stage. It's just basically a final boss battle to end the game. Gameplay involves walking around and platforming and using the baseball bat to not only hit enemies, but to reflect objects back at the enemies. You're walking around and there's these little rooms everywhere. Some of them are boss rooms and the other ones are empty or maybe have a power up inside of them. Once you defeat all the level bosses that are in these rooms, and sometimes it varies, sometimes there will only be one level boss, sometimes there will be up to three, you obtain a key, and what you do is you get to the key, you platform until you get to the exit of the game. So, Sean, I want to just talk to you about what you thought about the gameplay mechanics, especially when it comes to the method of attack in this game. Speaking of the story first, I thought the setup of the story is really cool. They give you kind of a cutscene when you first start. It doesn't overstay its welcome. You just have to read a little, a few screens of text. You know, it introduces Mark and Bert and it's just very simple and it lays a groundwork for the gameplay. You find out why you're in this world and you have your weapon, which is your baseball bat that you were walking home from school with. (laughs) Yeah. So... It's a very fantastical story, but it all makes sense within the context of the gameplay. So I think that's kind of very well done. As far as the gameplay itself, uh, like you were saying, it's just an action platformer where you have the baseball bat and you can turn into Bert with the pill power up. You can fly by tapping the A button. That would be your jump button. But if you press it repeatedly, that makes him fly. And he has a shooting laser beam type of projectile. It doesn't go very far, so you have to uh, mind your range with it. And it sort of changes throughout the game as well, as far as the length that it goes and then the number of projectiles you shoot sometimes. But yeah, the game is, um, it's not a boss rush, but it's kind of like a boss hunt. You have to... (laughs) It's a good way to describe it, yeah. Yeah, and you have to find all the bosses. It's an interesting mechanic. You know, I complained about it, and I'm probably going to complain about it here, but I like the idea. I like that it's unconventional in a sense that you're not just running to the end of a level and facing one boss. You have to walk around and find multiple bosses. So that's very unique. And then, like you were saying, once you defeat them all, you know that you did because you get the key. So that's your indication that you're done. And then you just have to find the exit door to go on to the next level. So, yeah, that's the gameplay in a nutshell. I like the concept, Mm -hmm. but there are some things with the execution that I wasn't in love with. For example, some of the rooms, like you said, are just empty. Yeah. And... 
there's this thing that happened or it happened to me a lot. It didn't seem to happen to some other people like you when you were commenting. And I don't know what to attribute it to. But in my playthrough, I was hardly ever transformed into Bert when I got to an actual boss room mm-hmm. and where I would have liked to use his powers because I would say he's more powerful yes. because he can fly and shoot rather than just swing a melee weapon, basically. Um, it was pretty rare for me to face a boss as Bert, and I found that kind of disappointing. But uh, that didn't seem to be a problem for other people, so I don't know really what to attribute it to. Maybe just timing and strategy was off for me. Well, I think what it is, and I kind of came to this understanding of the game today, not in my normal playthrough of the game, which I did notice this too, but in playing the Japanese version, there are specific enemies in this game that drop hearts and that also drop pills. So it's not like a random thing where you kill something in a game, let's say like Metroid, and then, you know, you might get an energy, you might get a missile, just kind of a random roll of the dice of what you get. You may get nothing, right? Mm-hmm. This game is set up so that a certain enemy will give you a certain item. And we should mention there's three items in this game. There's a heart, uh, which gives you more energy. Uh, there's the pill, which turns you into Bert. And then there's this question mark. And the question mark can do one of three things. It can either give you more energy, it can turn you into Bert. Or it can just give you points, right? Right. And so those are basically the three items. I fought a lot of the boss fights, the majority, I would say, probably over 90% of them, with Bert. The reason for that is, I think, knowing which rooms to go in and which of them would not be empty. And so what that allowed me to do was like to skip over those rooms and just keep flying faster, you know, getting to the door where the boss was quicker, which is sort of the key to it. And in other places... We didn't mention this about the game yet, but you can actually backtrack. If you miss a room, you can go back and try to find bosses. But if you go past a room sometimes, you can actually pick up a pill from one of the enemies and then go back to the boss room. Usually when you come up on the door, you're just going to go in it each time, especially if you're new to a game, right? Sure. Or you know you haven't played it as much. You're just going to go into the room. You're not going to go past it. Sometimes I found myself going past it a little bit and able to get a pill and then quickly make my way back to the room and have that Burt transformation for the entire fight. That's a bit of the strategy to the game is knowing which of these characters drop these pills and knowing how fast you have to get to a different place, even if you have to fly through someone and take a little bit of damage to uh, you know maximize that time as Burt because you do so much more damage as him. And then, of course, you can fly back and forth over the bosses that are mobile. We should mention that some of the bosses are mobile. Some of them are not. Some of them just stand in one place and you're just hitting projectiles back at them. So uh, I think that's the reason, Sean. I think that's probably why you probably didn't fight as many of the battles as Bert, if I had to guess, and you know why I would say over 90% of mine were with him. Yeah, that makes sense. I know when I played the game the first time that I was really, I was brute forcing my way through the game way too much. And it sounds like if you use a little bit of finesse and a little bit of strategy, you'll have a much better time. And uh, I didn't play through the whole game today, but I was, I wanted to try the Japanese version. So I was just 
kind of screwing around in the first level, but really trying to take my time. And you you had mentioned on the forum that you can kind of grind in this game a little bit. If, you know, if you're low on life, you can grind for hearts if you know where to find them. So mm-hmm. I was trying to do that a little bit and um, didn't go through the whole game, but I could see where, you know, honestly, if you just take your time and, and do a little bit more of a strategy, you'll you'll have a better time than I did. And uh, when you're younger, when you're a kid and you have all summer to play one game kind of situation, <laughs> That's right. uh, you'd probably learn to do that. That's exactly right. You know, I didn't get a lot of games growing up. You know, I would usually only get a game for either my birthday, for Christmas, or if I had saved up my allowance to purchase it myself. Mm-hmm. And so the games that I did borrow or rent from my friend and his dad's video store I would have that one game for a long time and, you know, sit and play it and sort of master it. And, uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and touch on the strategies for this game since you mentioned them. And um, it's something that I put in the thread, but also on the initial post. As you mentioned, this is really not a game that you should rush through. It's a game that you need to take your time with. And I know that with a lot of platformers, especially when you think of things like Mario Brothers, that's a game you have to be quick in because there's a time limit and the flow of the game dictates that you move quickly through it. But this one is one that you can really take some time with. And some of the strategies that that I gave were basically the bosses have a specific path they go to a certain spot and then they turn around and go the other way and come back. And so if you just stand at the edge of that path and take them out, then you don't get hit. And the other thing that you mentioned is that you can actually farm hearts in this game. And I actually counted today as I was playing the Japanese version. You can either go back into a room and come back out, or you can just walk off to the side of the screen if an enemy drops a heart, when you come back and an enemy repops immediately, it's going to drop another heart. And it will do that seven times. Each heart's worth about three health, so you can fill up at least 21 spaces if you don't get hit. I actually farmed enough one time where I filled up the entire life bar today. That's a huge, huge life bar. And uh, I I tell you, man, the Japanese version, it's harder than the U.S. version. I'm going to be honest, man. I could not get past the first level for a while. It took me a long time. I mean, I've been popping this game and then pulling it out for weeks and couldn't get past it. Today, I was like, look, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to farm these hearts. I did that. I didn't die the whole game after I made it past that first level. You know, yeah, Krabby mentioned a similar experience on his first playthrough. So Mm -hmm. would you say at this point, now that you've played both versions, that the first level is the hardest level of the game? I think so. I think getting accustomed to the game, there are three bosses in the first level, but one is really not a boss. You go into a room, there's a big tarantula. He says, I'm already dead. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> very funny. But, I love that. Yeah, I do too. I like the little <laughs> things they throw in and we'll talk about another one later. I'm very sure. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's one of those type of games that's like front loaded, very heavy. And then it gets, a little easier as you go through, and then it gets hard again toward the end. Okay. Levels 7, which is the tower, and 8, which is the cloud world. That's a pretty tough level. It's funny in the Japanese version, which you know, I keep alluding to it, I'll talk about later. Those levels are much easier. It's like the game is very heavily front-loaded, and then the later levels are easier. Level 8 is very easy compared to the U.S. version. But yeah, I think, again, just kind of getting back to it, the strategy is that you have to kind of slow it down and, uh, 
you know, it makes for a more enjoyable experience if you take your time and do a little bit of grinding. Cool. All right. So a few other things I wanted to talk about. One of the things I really like about this game is it does have a password system. So no matter how difficult it is, you are able to pop that password in and it starts you out at the beginning of each level. One of the tough things that I had with the password system, like in most password systems, the O and the zero look a lot alike. Uh-huh. And so you have to be really careful. One is more square. So I would just put a square instead of O so I could sort of differentiate between which was which. So, yeah, you got to be kind of careful there. And one thing I want to mention about the password system is that I think you might have seen this, too. It's really kind of bizarre that there's this much gore in a uh, NES title. This made it past the uh, the censors, Nintendo of America. That's right. There's a lot of imagery in this game. And um, Chris Dutogo mentioned that in the forums that there's just a lot of gore. The password system is just a room full of dripping blood with it's skeletons, skeletons floating and a, and in like it. And like a knife that's <laughs> folded out. Yeah, I mean, it's just right. really bizarre. <laughs> and uh, I think there's some religious imagery in it, too, that kind of snuck past. So, uh, yeah, I don't think the censors really paid much attention to this game, which I'm very, very shocked by. But yeah, the password system, I think, is really, really neat. One of the battles that you had a little bit of the problem with was the uh, the fried food battle. <laughs> it's yeah, another yeah. kind of comical yeah. battle in this game. You're <laughs> fighting against a, uh, a piece of fried shrimp, an onion ring, and a, I believe it's a shish kebab. Right. And I don't know if you knew that you can do this during that fight, but did you know that you could actually duck and they would go over top of you? I definitely didn't because, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's the thing I think with a lot of these bosses that you have to like kind of put some thought into a strategy um, yeah. because you can't just brute force. Again, Chris Duke Togo mentioned that there are some bosses that you can just spam and kind of sacrifice some of your health to just kind of throw yourself at them. Mm-hmm. But then... As you guys told me on the forum, some of these bosses, there's a strategy that makes them quite easy. And for all the fits I had with the fried foods boss, both you and Krabby kind of mentioned like that's one of the easier bosses in the game because all you got to do is duck under them. So, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of kicking myself for that. But uh, yeah, it just goes to show that if you know what to do, this game is not that hard, you know. Yeah, and some of the more stationary bosses, there are certain spots that you can stand in that you'll get a projectile and you can just hit it back. So, yeah, I mean, there are definitely strategies in the game for most of them. Some of the uh, the more mobile enemies, you just have to just grind for hearts and get your life bar up because you know you're going to take damage in some of those fights. So uh, it's a little bit of a balancing act, you know, as you're playing this game. But uh, one of the things I wanted to mention about the ducking was just that you have this, like, little crawling mechanism. I don't know if you tried that or not. <laughs> yeah, it's no, so it's great. really funny animation. I love it. His lip. <laughs> kind of pucker out as he's doing right. it. He looks like a little itchworm, and you hardly go anywhere like yeah. when you're, when you you're doing it. You squirm a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And like you said, it's one of my favorite animations, and I, I just had to mention it. So I did want to mention something about the bosses. Even in the U.S. game, there are some bosses and enemies that are based on Japanese folklore. In the first level, you see like the human-faced dog that walks around with his tongue hanging out. 
Yeah. Just a little strange, but that's an item from uh, Japanese folklore. And also there's a boss, which is the wishing well, which throws out the plates at you. I had originally thought that maybe that was something from, uh, you know, like a U.S. fairy tale, like Jack and Jill or something like that. But that is actually a piece of Japanese folklore about an evil well that might be of interest to some of our listeners, especially you, Sean. Uh, if they want to, you know, maybe look up the story behind that, but it's um, it's really yeah, cool. cool. Yeah. So what did you think about the variety of enemies and the bosses in this game? Any uh, favorite boss that you maybe had? Oh, I certainly have a favorite one, but I did enjoy the variety. Um, I thought it was cool that you never knew what you were going to get when you went into one of those rooms, empty rooms and all, you know, when you walk in, you don't know what you're going to face. In the first level, there was the pumpkin guy who kind of scrolls back and forth on the screen to, like you said, there's an already dead tarantula in the first level. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm already dead or something like that. He (laughs) says, great. Um, there's one that's a cat that throws like snakes at you and, um, there's other ones with like little tricks to them. And my favorite boss far, far, far and away is the one where you just go in the room and the caption says, watch my dance. And it's two zombies and it's probably the best music in the game because it's not grating and we'll get to the music, but it's actually like a poppy little jig and they're just dancing and you can hit them and they just collapse and stand right back up and yep. you can hit them forever and they'll just keep doing that. And uh, you know what you have to do? You have to watch them dance. That's right. And then you clear the room. I thought that was brilliant. I love that kind of thing. Yeah. That one just warmed my heart. And that was my favorite level as well. That was in level five, which is kind of the... yeah. Yeah. So I really liked, I thought it was brightly colored. It looks like something out of Mario or Adventure Island or something. It's really kind of out of place for this game, but it has these cute little... (laughs) They look like shark fins at first, but then it jumps out. It's a little fish with a fake shark fin on top of it. And um, there's like these Loch Ness Monster things floating around. It's just very cute and endearing. And it has that Watch My Dance boss in it. So that was my favorite level with my favorite boss. I would say that's probably the most platformy level as well. Where you're not killing a lot of enemies. You're just platforming to jump over them. And you've got some sequences where you have to do some timing jumps. Especially with the Loch Ness Monsters. So uh, yeah, I definitely think that's probably the most platformy level. But like you said, I mean, a lot of the other levels have a little bit of a darker cryptic vibe to them. And that one's really bright and colorful. So, uh, yeah, it does kind of stand out. Good point. Yeah, as far as the bosses, I love the integration of the baseball bat and that there are always projectiles from all the bosses that you can hit back at them. I can't remember a single battle that doesn't have some sort of projectile. Well, I guess the... um, the fried food battle. When you're fighting the fried food, there's no projectiles. You just have to lay down, let them hop over you, and then hit them with your bat, jumping behind them. But yeah, I like how it's all integrated. I really, really like the differentiation in the boss characters and uh, these kind of kickbacks to some horror themes. I don't want to say horror films. As far as my favorite, that's going to be a hard one to pick. I'm not sure. I can tell you some of my least favorite. My least favorite is probably the (laughs) Minotaur with the cows, which is just weird. But I guess maybe my favorite might be the the cat 
in the box. It yeah. looks like kind of like a cuddly kitten when you go in and it's like a little jack in the box and it gets a little evil thing on its face and it throws like yeah. little gremlins or something at you. I don't know what that is, but you can just stand in one spot and hit those back at it. Another thing I like about the game as far as hitting the projectiles back is that it really depends on when you swing as far as where the projectile is going to go. If you swing late, it's going to go straight up. If you swing earlier, it's going to go straight across the screen. And if you swing kind of in the sweet spot, it's going to go at kind of a diagonal angle. So I just thought that was like a really neat mechanic. Yeah, this game is unsung for having really ahead of its time baseball physics, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I can think of any other game during its time that had this mechanic. You know, maybe that's part of you know the reason I really liked it a lot when I was younger. I did want to mention some of the game frustrations. Our friend Metal Fro brought up level seven. There's a bug. There are three bosses in this level, but basically if you kill two bosses, you get a key. If you go and kill the third boss, it takes away the key. And I'm not sure if it's a bug or if it's the way the game was meant to play. Now, I've played this game tons of times, Sean, and I've never encountered this bug. Oh, that's interesting. And I think the reason is, once you get the key, it shows up in the bottom right corner of your screen. That's right. So once I get the key, I don't go in any more rooms. Right, you get the hell out of there. Right, right. So I've never (laughs) had that problem before. I think that has a lot to do with why I've never experienced this bug, but certainly I can see that being a frustration to people who like to explore and check out the whole game, as it were, instead of just rushing toward the exit like I do. Right. I think the other frustration that some people mentioned was level eight in the, I'm going to say, quote unquote, hidden area in the game. I like this. I don't know how you felt about it. It did trick me. I did not remember this from playing the game when I was a kid. You start that level, it's the cloud world, and you're going to the right, as you usually do throughout the game when you're platforming. Well, I killed two bosses and then got to the end, and I was like, wait a minute, I don't have my key yet. I swear I went into every room. And so I figured, okay, well, I'm going to backtrack. I'm going to go into every room again, and I did, and I couldn't find anything. And then I just kept going to the left. And sure enough, from the start spot, if you go to the left... There's a door, and that's the first ball. So it's not hidden, but if you don't know about that room, then you're just going to go right past it and on to um, the other two bosses. Fortunately for me, I don't think I could have beaten that first boss to the left without being burnt. And I think it kind of helps in that you can play through the level, you can grind some hearts up, you can kill the other two bosses, And then even though it is a trek and that you have to go through some of the enemies, I think it's maybe easier to beat that dragon boss if you've gotten more health and you can go in there as Bert. I don't know. What did you think about that part of the game? Was that something that you had maybe looked at a video on and already knew about it? Or, you know, was it something that kind of threw you off as well? Yeah, no, I definitely fell for it, and I had the same experience as you. I got all the way to the end of the level, and I just said, what gives? I got everybody. So, yeah, kind of backtracking, thinking I missed the door, Yeah, and then just kind of, you know, like you said, you scroll past that start point, and you oh, okay, that's what it is. So, yeah, I think in a game where it's established that you can scroll both left and right, that it's kind of fair game, you know what I mean? It's a neat little trick, you know? I totally agree, and I do want to mention that that is not in the Japanese game. You totally Uh scroll to the right, and the dragon boss is actually the third boss. 
you start in the same place, but the church or whatever that, you know, that Dragon Boss is in, um, I think you go past that and there's like another little green room or something, and that's where the dragon is. So there are three bosses on that level, but they didn't put in the little trick that they put into the U.S. version, which I'm like you, I like it. I think it's fair game, and, uh, you know, I can see people complaining about it, but at the same time, it's sort of like, you know, that's what this game makes you do. It makes you think. It's not a conventional game. Right. That's something I really enjoy about it. Can I talk about my uh, biggest frustration? Absolutely. In the game? Uh, level six, the door maze. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually didn't complete it. I beat all the bosses, got the key, and I saw the final door, but I couldn't access it. And I just was going door to door to door to door for like a half an hour. And I just, I reset the game and put in the password for the next level. <laughs> I, I didn't even, <laughs> I said to hell with this. I'm just going to the next level with the password. So that level, man, that was really getting to me. Yeah, it's frustrating. That is a very trial and error level. And there were several complaints about that. There's actually only one boss on that level. It's like the chameleon face or whatever, where there's like five or six faces, but you can only oh, hit right, one right. of them. It's the only boss on that level. I think they kind of said, well, if we're going to frustrate him with a maze, let's just have one boss. You know? <laughs> Which yeah. totally makes sense. But yeah, that's a pain in the butt and gave me a lot of frustration. I remember as a kid, but uh, yeah, not so much this time. I just kind of put it together and was able to figure it out. But uh, yeah, that can be very frustrating. What we've got on gameplay, what did you think about these uh, 8-bit graphics, Sean? Oh, they're very distinctive, and um, the level of detail is very well done, especially for something that's so fantastical and horror-driven. Yeah. The one thing I would say, though, is I think the first level kind of got all the attention. 
there's even this mechanic where halfway through the first level, there's like this lightning strike sound effect and the whole veneer of the level changes and it becomes more like scary looking. It's more jagged and decayed and it goes from cartoonish to kind of not gory, but more grotesque. And um, I thought that was kind of neat, but it wasn't something that they used for the rest of the game. So I wonder if they had planned to do that for the other levels, but just didn't have the time because they had to redesign the entire level to do that. And, uh, you know, that would take a lot of time and resources. So I wonder if they just did it for the first level and couldn't for the others. But uh, yeah, the graphics are really good. I like all the gore and and the blood. Like we said before, it's very unusual for an NES game to have this level of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And just to kind of go back just a a minute to the whole transition of the game there at that first level. I really like that, too. And I kind of wonder, you know, why they didn't do something like that through the rest of the game. But then I think about it and that's sort of like you're entering the dark world. You're going to save this land. And even though you've already fought enemies before getting there, I kind of felt like this was sort of a transition where you're just kind of like, "Uh uh-oh, this is getting serious now. This has gotten a lot darker. This game is something that's, uh, I don't want to say scary because I don't think there's anything really scary about the game but it just gives it a gloomier type feel that's uh more appropriate i think (laughs) which you know you're kind of losing that lake level but at the same time you know i I don't know it still feels like a really nice part of that game it's kind of like the uh the drawbridge closing in castlevania like you've already played a little bit of the game but at that point you're like okay this is getting serious yeah yeah great point there And speaking about the levels, I just wanted to kind of mention them really quick. And I'm not getting these names from anywhere. This is just kind of my descriptions of the levels. So uh, level one is like a wicked forest. Level two seems to be like a sewer. Level three is a cave. Four is an Egyptian tomb. Five is the lake. Six is the haunted house maze. Seven is the tower. And eight is like a cloud world. I thought the environments were really cool. I really, really liked them. I think you're right, though, in the fact that first level got all of the major detail and there are things that I really loved about that, even to the point of the hands that were coming out of the ground that would take off your energy if you hit them. Do you remember that part? Yes. Is that in both versions? Because I noticed it today in the Japanese version Mm -hmm. that that made it to both. Okay. Yeah. You're talking about the transition, right? Yeah. Oh, so th- those are only after the level changes. Yeah. I don't remember perfectly clearly my first playthrough because it was a couple of weeks ago on the American version, but I played the Japanese version today, so I I know those those hands. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely in the U.S. version as well. So, okay, yeah. cool. Like you said, a lot of detail in that first board, but with a lot of games, when you're developing something, you know, getting someone hooked into that first level, you know, is uh, really kind of key to getting people interested in the game and, you know, getting them to play through it. Yeah, I thought the level design in this game, like graphically, the levels look good. I thought the design was pretty cool, too. There were some levels that had dead ends. You know, like the sewers and stuff like that, where you would try to go one way and you'd have to be like, oh man, I got to backtrack around again. Or you needed to jump to a certain platform. Or if you were Bert, you could fly up to a higher door. But if you weren't, you would have to go around as Mark. I thought that was a great attention to detail and level design that made it really cool. Yeah, 
Sometimes it might cost you a little life in the process of having to do a little bit of backtracking, but it made the game more challenging, and, you know, I, I could appreciate that. I don't know. What did you think about level design? No, I think it was decent. Like you said, it's mostly linear with a little bit of maze-like qualities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was thinking in level four is where they really kind of thought outside of the box where there are these doors way up high that you can't reach as Mark. And uh, that one was the one that had the most tough jumps. And there were really like high platforms that you had to kind of figure out how to get to. I think there was a good like kind of variety in the level design. Like you were saying with what you called the lake level, the outdoor level, um, like you were saying, it's very linear, but there's a lot of pits to fall in. And it's that one's more of a running and jumping kind of level. Whereas, for example, the sewer level, as you were saying, there's like three levels that run the entire board, let's say. And you have to know which floor to be on out of the three. And yeah. you can only go so far left or right without hitting a barrier. So, yeah, they, they really did kind of mix it up. And of course, we have level seven, which is the only vertical level. So they threw that in there as well. So good stuff. Yeah, I think so. I really like the variety of it as well. All right. So let's move on into the music and sound in the game. This was something that uh, a lot of people did not like on the forums. There was a lot (laughs) of negativity about the music and sound in this game. So I'll let you start out talking about that. Yeah, so for once, I have a pretty clear-cut opinion on the music in a game, and mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm one of the. I thought the music was really bad. It's very repetitive and pulsating, and just beep 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 beep, beep like just forever. And it's like these ten or twenty-second loops. Oh my goodness, it's very grating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I agree to an extent. I'm gonna mostly agree with you on that. I do not like the stage music. But I do like the boss music. I think it's very intense and fitting. It's pretty much the same for almost every boss. I think it's different when you fight the punk rock guy, <laughs> the punk yeah. rock ghost or whatever. <laughs> it's different one. there, which I which I like. I like that it's different there. It fits, you know? Yeah. Um, but I do like that. It's such a short fight that that's all you need, just something that's looped like that. But I totally agree that the stage music, like you said, it's 10 to 20 second loops, and it's really, really bad. However, I will say the music that bookends this game, like the opening music, the theme music, the ending music, it's really, really good. It does not loop like the other stuff does. It's a little bit deeper and a little longer. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think that music is actually good. And I don't really know what happened. I don't know if they ran out of funding or if, you know, they just said, hey, we need music for this game and just shoved it to a guy with a keyboard and said, just do like. 10 to 20 second sounds. It's like they had a guy who was typing on a typewriter and they pulled the typewriter away and put a piano in front of them. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah. the music they got. <laughs> that's exactly what they did. I don't know if it's true or not, but we said it. So it's true. Uh, yeah. So how about the sound effects? Um, how did you feel about those? Uh, pretty decent. Just normal like bloops and bleeps and the, the ricochet sound when you deflect something back is pretty good. So yeah, yeah, good stuff there. Sounded like a Little League game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that exactly. metal bat, you know? Yep. I did like that. I, I didn't have a problem with any of the sound effects. I thought they sounded pretty good. Taking damage was pretty good. And, uh, you know, 
I know some people complained about this too, but I even thought the transition into Bert was pretty good. I like that sound. And I like that, you know, there was like this kind of pause. I didn't understand why eating a pill was like, you know, your connection to Bert. And that's what was going to make you uh, transition into him. But I don't know. I kind of think the sound effect for that's endearing. It's kind of like a cartoony, like almost going into a dream sequence. Yeah. It's almost... Similar to the Legend of Zelda, like opening a chest music, much shorter than that, but it's, it's a crescendo of, I don't know my musical terms besides crescendo, but it is <laughs> it is that. It is building up to you making the, the change. <laughs> you making that sound reminded me of Wayne's World. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yep, exactly. I was thinking about that too. It's kind of like that. Yeah. and move into discussing the Japanese version of this game. Sean, I, I don't know how much of this you played, but let me just go into a brief background on the game, or the game that wasn't a game. On May 26, 2011, there was actually a prototype of the canceled Japanese release listed on Yahoo Japan auctions. It closed at 483,000 yen, which is approximately $6,000. And then I guess the guy that ended up buying it, thank goodness, actually let someone do a ROM dump. And on July 3rd, 2014, the unreleased Japanese Famicom version was leaked out online and made available to whoever wanted it. Now, I was able to pick up a copy on cart. I got it from a place called Fan Brew Games. They're on Etsy. Just happened to find it there and uh, actually got a red cart version of the game. So if anyone likes Monster Party as much as I do and would like to play the Japanese version, that is one of the places where you can get it. Actually, the only place that I found that I could get it. I'm sure there are many more. But uh, anyway, Sean, uh, tell us about the Japanese version. What are some things that you noticed about it that were different? Well, I'll tell you, I didn't get very far. I um, It's difficult. only played through the first level and couldn't even beat that first level. So you're going to be more the expert on this one. But I did notice kind of a, a little bit higher level of detail. There's more like graphical assets yeah. in some of the boss rooms, which I found kind of surprising. 
Now, I noticed you posted some screen caps of you playing the Japanese version, which was actually translated. I was playing the Japanese ROM, which was in Japanese. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too, that on that repro cart that you got was actually a translated version. So I wonder if they just took the English from the original release and just slapped it in or if they did a retranslation. I'm not sure what what they did there, but um, I thought that was kind of interesting. I think it's a retranslation, and the reason that I think that is a lot of the bosses, the things they say before the the battles, they're completely different. Even the spider says something different, so there's a lot of different dialogue. And in the Japanese version, which is translated, Bert is named Bergen, B-I-R-G-O-N. Oh, okay. So there are those little differences, which I think this is a translated version for that reason. Um, I didn't notice this, but apparently in the first level, there are like mountains in the background. And, you know, there's just like a deeper kind of landscape in that first level that you don't see in the U.S. version. As I mentioned before, there's different dialogue. And not only is there different dialogue, there's different bosses. Right. The first time you notice this is with the pitcher plant that you fight in the first one. In this one, it spits out notes at you instead of bubbles, which is an allusion to the film Little Shop of Horrors. And then the second boss, after the dead spider, so it would technically be the third boss, is uh, a guy from Planet of the Apes riding on the horse instead of the uh, pumpkin head guy. That's right. I did see that. That was funny because you got the Statue of Liberty in the background. That that was a really good scene in the game. I loved it. Yeah. Medusa looks more like Medusa. There's even some enemies in the level, like in the cave, you know, you got those floating vampires. They have more of a Bella Lugosi face to them instead of a bat-like face. Oh, cool. In the sewers, you know, the eggs that are on the ground that spit the bubbles at you. Instead of bubbles, they spit face huggers at you from Alien, which is cool. (laughs) And there's actually even an alien boss in the game. You know, just tons and tons of licensed movie references that I don't think that they would have gotten away with for an American version. And probably a reason that they decided to sort of table that Japanese version. But uh, yeah, I mean, some of the bosses are the same. But there are quite a few differences in the Japanese version. If you're, you know, a big movie buff as far as sci-fi horror films and a gamer, this might be one you want to pick up. It's really, really neat. It is tougher at the onset, but I feel like it kind of dips down. I didn't have any problem making it through that game after I got through the first level. Did not die a single time, which I was completely surprised by. You know, maybe that's just because of my familiarity with the North American version and playing it so much lately and regaining that muscle memory, you know? Yeah. No, that's really cool. I I think it's cool that we got to play a game with such an interesting history in this way. And the fact that you were able to pick up a repro cart for your collection and, and you pointed me in the direction of where the ROM originally got dumped. So I was able to download that and play a little bit of that there. I think it's really cool that we're able to kind of look into this history here and experience uh, what's really, like I said, it's an oddity in game development, the way things traditionally went back then. It's really cool. 
Yeah, and I just want to say, sure, they're not listening, but a big thank you to the guy who purchased the cart and actually dumped the ROM and wasn't selfish with it. Um, yes. I think yes. that's really cool when people do that. I mean, I know that's your hard-earned money and you don't want other people making money off something that is technically your license, but it's really cool when people do that. It's very much appreciated that we can have, like you said, this piece of history. All right, so it's time for our final thoughts. Sean, we're going to start off talking about what did you think about the ending of the game? Can you refresh mine and everybody's memory on the ending? I know it's like kind of a double fake out, but what happens at the end of the game here? So at the end of the game, Bert hands you a box to thank you for saving his world. When you open the box, a beautiful princess comes out of it, and she immediately turns into a creepy zombie and (laughs) actually melts your skin. In the middle of that, you wake up, you realize, oh, it was all just a dream. Your mom's calling you to go to school, and as you're going out the front door, Bert is standing there, and he's like, we've got to go again. So yeah, you're right. It is that sort of double fake out. And uh, I can probably imagine what you think about this because I know you don't like those like clean cut endings of games, but uh, you know, I'm not going to put words in your mouth here. So, (laughs) You know what? We didn't really talk about the final boss. We're kind of getting discombobulated here, but we should mention that after level eight, which is the cloud level, there is a final boss, which some people call level nine, but it's just a one screen boss. It has a central weak point and you have to kind of avoid projectiles and attack the central weak point. What did you think of the very final boss? You know, it's not hard to be Bert and go into the final boss. Even though you can use those projectiles, you really don't have to. He goes down really quick. He's really, really easy. Mm-hmm. From what I've heard, this boss is a zombie. I don't know how I felt about that description, but it looks like sort of like a voodoo mask or something like that. It's awesome. I love the appearance of it. It's beautiful, very colorful and wicked looking. But yeah, I thought the final boss battle was a little unsatisfying and a little bit too easy. I beat it the first time I got to it in both playthroughs that I did. Cool. Um, As far as the ending of the story... I thought it was cool. I mean, yeah, I don't like these like clean, happy endings. And <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if, uh, you know, Mark just dissolves <laughs> and then it's like the end. <laughs> that would have been really uh, traumatizing. Would have, maybe but, uh, even fitting. Right. <laughs> right. Totally. But yeah, the the fact that they kind of do the, oh, it was all a dream, but then it wasn't. Here's Bird again. I think that's kind of cool. And it kind of... I mean, we never got a sequel, obviously, but they maybe were trying to leave it open to a sequel, which is very interesting. I mean, you know, as well as anybody, a lot of these NES games, they just say, thank you for playing the end, you know, like at least we got a cool cutscene at the end of this game and it actually has an ending. So we can say that for it. I think it's really, really cool. What about you? I thought it was going to be like a Ghost and Goblins type ending when I saw the endings. Like, okay, you beat it this time. Now you got to play through it again. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And I saw that at the end. I was like, oh, man, I'm going to play through this game again. And I couldn't remember (laughs) if I had to or not when I was a kid. No, you don't. The screen just kind of freezes. You can't even get back to the main menu unless you hit reset. Uh, So so the game is over at that point. 
I thought the ending was interesting. Uh, a lot of games, you know, like, especially I always mention Karnov. You get to the end of it, it says, congratulations, the end, and that's it. That's all you get. This one, you actually get a bit of a screen credit roll, which is nice, I think. Oh, yeah. I think that's really yeah. neat that they, you know, gave some props to the developers because not all NES games really did that. I thought it was a neat little twist. It's a little unsettling. Bert looks a little bit evil when he steps up to your door, so you don't know if you're still dreaming or not. Maybe you are again. I think he has a bat in his hand as well. Maybe he's saying, yeah, here's your bat. You know, we're going. Or, you know, he's just going to knock you over the head right there. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I I thought it was neat. You know, nothing extravagant, but it was nice that they actually made a decent ending to an 8-bit game which you just didn't really see very many good endings to games at that point. So I can appreciate it. So you mentioned this too, that they leave the game a little bit open-ended. So my other question was, um, is this a game that you would like to see remade for a modern console? Yeah, I think this could be cool and you could do it many ways. But the two ways I would think that you could do it is either have it be one of these new-ish style kind of vamped up pseudo 3D platformers, like just take the original gameplay, but make it a lot more accessible, like maybe less rigid. So people like me who aren't good at these older kind of games don't get so frustrated with it. Or you could really go modern and do like a hack and slash, like, you know, (laughs) Mark running around with a baseball bat and like the Unreal Engine, you know, make it glory as hell. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that would be awesome if they did that. I feel funny saying this, but oddly, I think I might prefer the uh, hack and slash version for this game. Uh, You know, maybe buy a few license to some of the universal monsters, like be able to fight like Dracula, like Gilman, you know, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, you know, something like that. That would be very, very cool because I think it's something you sort of expected in the first game that you didn't really get, you know, based on the cover art. But yeah, I would love to see this game remade. I, I would be all over it. I think that would be very, very cool. Yeah, agreed. All right, so final thoughts, Sean. All right, so I mean, like I said, this game is something I grew up with. It's one of those carts that I'm going to hold on to forever. It has a lot of sentimental value to me. Uh, playing through it was not what I expected. I didn't realize that it was so hard. Um, the gameplay was rigid in a way that I didn't find any kind of good groove at any time, any kind of comfort zone. I had to rely on the game genie quite a bit. I had to use, like I said, the level passwords in one instance to kind of skip a section of the game. But it's one of those games that I'm very glad to have finally played through it and seen the whole thing and really kind of understand how it works and what you have to do to beat it. In a way, it's a lot like when we played Jaws. Everybody played Jaws as a kid. Everybody fooled around with it and you swim around and you don't know what you're doing. But when we actually played Jaws, I was like, oh, my God, I can beat Jaws. I know what to do. So right. With Monster Party, it was a very similar experience. Rather than running around aimlessly swinging a baseball bat at these ghost school kids in the first level, the the primary school (laughs) Japanese students. Goth kids, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To actually know what you have to do, you know, understanding, okay, go to the boss rooms, find the bosses, beat them, get the key, find the exit. It was really revelatory to go through that process 
no matter how frustrating the actual gameplay was. So mm -hmm. would I recommend it? I mean, if you're into old NES games, absolutely I would. If you're a newcomer to NES and you're not well-versed in the NES library, it's not a good place to start. But if you're looking for something that's a little bit off the beaten path, it's not a game that everybody has heard of. So if you've exhausted your NES library and looking for something new, definitely give it a try. It's very unique. I agree. I agree with a lot of your points there. You know, and like I said at the beginning of this call, you know, it's hard for me to look at this game without some sort of rose-tinted glasses on. I have so much nostalgia for this game. It's one I played so much as a kid. I love the horror theme. Obviously, you know, I'm really big into horror films. But what I really like about this game and what I really appreciate is how it sort of turns platforming on its head a bit. You can't rush through this game. You have to learn how to play it. It takes a specific method. You have to farm for hearts. You have to take your time. You have to find the edges of where the uh, enemies are going to end their path of walking and turn around so you can just hit them there without taking damage. The boss battles are all different. There are certain places you can stand. There's certain techniques, you know, like ducking and things like that in the game. And I really like this game because I think it's a game you really have to learn. And once you learn it, you can really appreciate being able to beat it. You know, some people say, well, this isn't like the greatest game on the NES. And I understand that. But to me, and this is just my opinion, others may not agree. I think it's one of the top 10 to 15 percent in the library. I think it's that good. So, yeah, I mean, this is one that I would definitely have in my collection. But uh, if you're looking for a good time in you know, a slower pace sort of platformer, I think it's one that, you know, you should definitely give a try. You may not like it, but you know, it's worth a go and uh, it's worth putting a little bit of time into. I know it's very hard to put time in in one month, but I can say that everyone that played this playthrough, us and the five other people that played this playthrough, finished the game. Only one person, I just haven't heard a report back as far as if they beat the game or not, but it's beatable. It's not one of these somewhat impossible games like Deadly Towers, which, by the way, Crabmaster just beat. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he loaded that video up on his channel. He's starting to load more NES games now that he's sold his store. But yeah, I mean, it's a beatable game, but it definitely takes some patience and some uh, trial and error to uh, master this game and, uh, you know, be able to get through it. It's one I recommend, but probably not a game for everyone. Cool. I just want to mention two things. You mentioned uh, Krabby's YouTube channel, which I'm very glad that he's doing that again because he actually recorded a playthrough of this game, which I used as a resource for taking my notes for this show. And also, we usually mention uh, the mm -hmm. value of a game at the time of this recording. And Monster Party, a uh, loose cart goes for about 15 bucks, So it's not a big expenditure if you're looking for the real deal. Yeah, just wanted to throw that out there. I appreciate that. All right, so uh, let's get into what games we're going to be playing in November and December, Sean. Very cool. Well, by the time you are listening to this, you should be playing Bioshock with us. Our playthrough, as of you and I recording this right now, hasn't started yet. But by the time you hear this, there will be a good amount of tips and tricks in the thread because I've nice. been... I actually finished the game a couple days ago. 
and I took a lot of notes, and I think there's a lot of things that it will help people to know up front when they start this game if they've never played it before. So yeah, hit up the threads, join our Bioshock playthrough, and uh, like I said, I'm, I'm really excited to record our episode on Bioshock, and I'm excited for you to play it, Rich. I think you've been kind of coming out of your shell as far as first-person shooters are concerned, and uh, I hope you enjoy it, and I'm very intrigued what you're going to think of it. So, yeah. yeah. I'm very excited to play this game. Um, as I mentioned before, it's that type of game that uh, I missed out on when it came out because I bought my PS3 so late, and then when I bought my PS3, we had already started <laughs> actually recording this playcast so uh, i just don't have a lot of time to play games other than what we put into this show so um right. being able to play it for this playcast is a special treat for me and uh maybe there'll be someone else that's playing it for the first time maybe not but i can't wait to hear everyone's thoughts on this game and then uh in december this year this is something we announced months ago we always do a competition every december and this time we decided to do a golf tournament what we're doing is we're having people sign up on the site and we're calling it the 2018 rf generation invitational golf tournament uh, i'll be hosting that month but what we're going to do is we're going to figure out who all we've got playing and uh signing up through about the middle of november and then what i'm going to do is i'm going to split people up into teams of probably three or four. We've already picked our games. Those are Hot Shots 4 for the PS2, Mario Golf Toadstool Tour for the GameCube, and Neo Turf Masters, which is available on the Neo Geo, which I know most people can't afford, but don't <laughs> panic. Uh, it's also available on, uh, I think it's SNK Arcade Classics Volume 1 for the Wii, PlayStation 2, and also available on the PSP. And it's also available on the eShop on the Switch. And I believe last I heard it was about $10. If you've never played Neo Turf Masters before, fantastic golf game. It's worth the download um, if you just want to get it through the eShop. So, uh, yeah, I hope people can join us. We will be giving away a prize to the team that wins the golf tournament this year. And, uh, Sean, I'm not going to put us on the same team. We can captain uh, two different teams, and then maybe I'll find someone else who's interested in being the captain for that third team. Oh, and cool. uh, should be a lot of fun, man. Nice. Well, I guess I'll have to win the prize because you make some really awesome trophies every year, <laughs> and uh, I'm looking forward to having that in my game room. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Hey, hell, I pay the price. All I want is to be left alone. 
And that will wrap up another episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for participating in the playthrough. In December, we have our competition month and the theme this year is golf games. The games selected are Hot Shots 4 for the PlayStation 2, Mario Golf Toadstool Tour for the GameCube, and Neo Turf Masters, originally for the Neo Geo and available on many different platforms. Visit the playthrough forum at rfgeneration.com right away to sign up for this tournament. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next month on the Playcast. Yeah, um, so hopefully if Telltale, you know, ends up having to fold, hopefully someone may take the reins and do the third game in that series. I would love to see that because I think they left you on sort of a prefaces, precipice. <laughs> I can't say it. How do you say that word? Precipice. 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 Press a piss out of your <laughs> wanger. <laughs> <laughs>